in a week of terrible uh, destruction, of uh, war against Gaza, that is now being referred to as a genocide. I'm being joined this evening by Raz Siegel, and Raz is an Israeli historian and an associate professor of Holocaust and Genocide Studies at Stockton University, where he's also an endowed professor in the study of modern genocide. Uh, we're also joined by our old friend Chris Doyle. Chris is the director of the Council for Arab-British Understanding, has been incredibly active this week in trying to persuade British parliamentarians that uh, what the Israeli government is engaged in is nothing short of war crimes. Uh, and has also made the same uh, claim uh, about Hamas and war crimes as well. Karim Ali is a Palestinian advocate and co-founder of the Gaza Sunbirds, and which is Palestine's first para-cycling team, and his family originate from Haifa and Sabarin. Uh, thanks all three of you for joining us. Um, we're going to come to you, Karim, a little later if we may. Uh, we know that uh, many of your team are in Gaza and you have been hearing their stories firsthand. And before we start this evening, um, uh, we were very, very sad to learn, devastated to learn this week, that one of our recent contributors to Palestine Deep Dive, Yusuf Dawaz, was killed in an Israeli bombardment. Now, Yusuf was a young Palestinian writer and a journalist. Uh, his family and friends describe him as a very kind and gentle soul, to those who knew him well. He was a member of We Are Not Numbers, which as many of you know, is a collective of Palestinian writers and journalists based in Gaza. And he loved photography, music and horse riding. And he was determined for the outside world to understand what it's like to live under 17 years of military siege. And that is a, that is a thought to just pause on because most young people in Gaza a third to a half of the population are young, million million young people, I have never known anything other than siege, living in an open-air prison, an open-air prison that this week became a slaughter ground. On October the 14th, Yusuf was killed by an Israeli missile strike on his family's home, and several other members of his family were also killed. And also... Um, we learned uh, here where I, I also work as a, as a director of the Center for United Nations Studies at the University of Buckingham. And one of our students last year, Ibrahim Asalia, who completed his doctorate on journalism and ethics in the Palestinian media and won a distinction, went to Gaza to visit his family just over a week ago. His father's very ill with cancer and became trapped there. And we heard from him a few days ago, but we've been trying to reach him since and we can't. So we're very concerned. And Ibrahim, if there's any way that you see this, you hear this, please do get in touch with me at the University of Buckingham email. Please let us know that you're safe and your family's safe and let us know uh, if there's anything that we can do. Look, thank you so much for joining us. I'll come to you. Uh, first of all, um, Raz, if I may, we've seen um, in recent days uh, President Biden uh, traveling to Israel, but of course meetings being cancelled in Jordan uh, and Egypt. And also we saw today uh, the British Prime Minister Rishi Sunak travel to Israel to meet Prime Minister Netanyahu. Um, 
looking at the situation right now, the absolutely dire situation, the, the news that I think 20 truckloads of aid may be allowed to cross the Rafa crossing into Gaza tomorrow, 20 truckloads for 2.4 million people is absolutely staggering. What, what, what really do you think was the point of these two visits by the President of the United States and the Prime Minister of the United Kingdom? What kind of did they did they exert any useful pressure on the on the Israelis, or what, what was the purpose? And 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 have they succeeded in whatever they set out to do? I, I can't, you know, I can't really speak to the uh, to to things that I don't know. I can speak to what we all heard. Uh, Biden said walking off the plane when he landed. Uh, 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 in Israel, and uh, actually, it might be uh, uh, worthwhile, if I may, to to quote uh, actually uh, uh, what he said very briefly. Uh, I think it's very telling. He said this: Hamas committed atrocities that recall the worst savages of ISIS, unleashing pure, unadulterated evil upon the world. There is no rationalizing it, no excusing it. The brutality we saw would have cut deep anywhere in the world, but it cuts deeper here in Israel. October 17th, which was a sacred Jewish holiday, became the deadliest day for the Jewish people since the Holocaust. It has brought to the surface painful memories and scars left by millennia of anti-Semitism and the genocide of the Jewish people. The world watched then, it knew, and the world did nothing. We will not stand by and do nothing again. Not today, not tomorrow, not ever. I, I think that this is very telling because with this, and you know, we all heard this, we all saw this. With this, Biden really... Uh, reinforced a deadly rhetoric that we heard just a couple of days ago from former Israeli Prime Minister Naftali Bennett in his uh, uh, tantrum on Sky News, uh, uh, where he said, quote, we, the Israelis, are fighting Nazis, right? Uh, so this uh, uh, deeply uh, uh, dehumanizing uh, language, this uh, language that... Uh, um, uh, conflates right, uh, a people in a state, Jews and Israel, this people, uh, this language that distorts the historical reality of a powerful state in the Holocaust, Nazi Germany, attacking a defenseless people, Jews, right, um, uh, and now presents a powerful state, powerful army backed by powerful allies as powerless Jews. Um, uh, in a struggle against Nazis rather than attacking, attacking defenseless Palestinians. Palestinians who were under decades of Israeli settler colonial rule, military occupation, siege, the longest siege in modern history on Gaza, which was already a clear violation of international humanitarian law. Um, so we heard all that we saw all that. It's in front of our eyes. And I have to say, this is the reason that we we, we see a clear shift today uh, among scholars in Holocaust and genocide studies. I can't say if it's very significant yet in terms of numbers or no, but we have a statement of more than 800 scholars of international law, of Holocaust and genocide studies, of conflict studies, uh, about... Uh, uh, the danger about really the unfolding genocidal violence, Israeli genocidal violence in Gaza today. There's some big names in Holocaust and genocide scholars on that list, including myself. There's Jewish Holocaust and genocide scholars. There's other scholars uh, uh, who are uh, uh, Jews. And 
this is significant and we can talk a bit more about it, but uh, it's significant, I think, because the discourse about the Holocaust, the way that Israel for decades has used the Holocaust to deny and distort and justify and rationalize Israeli mass violence against Palestinians uh, um, and creating a status, a state of impunity for, uh, uh, for Israel around the world. I think that this is breaking down now in among Holocaust and genocide studies scholars. And that, that I think uh, is very, very significant. And it's because we see what we, what, and we hear what Biden uh, said. And as scholars in the field, we know that this is simply not true. This is simply a distortion. Thank you, Raz. I mean, clearly we can see collective punishment at work. Um, and I'm coming to you, Chris. Uh, it, International humanitarian law, the rules of war. I mean, it's been quite. I was listening to Jeffrey Robertson KC the other day, who was saying, yes, clearly the Hamas attacks were uh, a breach of international human rights law. Um, and the acts of the Israeli government are the same. Um, and the, and the, I think that was been very difficult for a lot of people uh, in Britain and America and Europe and what have you who are watching their leaders is, is hearing on the one hand um, them saying, we uh, Israel has a right of self-defense. Well, I think everybody agrees to that. But um, beyond that, um, it has a green light, really, to take the necessary action that it needs to take. And therefore, we had a situation, as you know very well, because I know you've been very active and, and you've had various meetings with people. But, you know, we had a situation, we had politicians in Britain from both major political parties essentially saying, well, you know, um, the, uh, the siege of Gaza, the electricity, the water, the humanitarian, all of this, the Israelis can continue to do this, um, but they mustn't breach international law. We heard the Prime Minister saying much the same as he was standing with Prime Minister Netanyahu today, as the Israeli forces will continue to pound uh, essentially civilian areas. So what is going on? And can you just, perhaps just for, for absolute clarity, tell us, Chris, what is, what should be governing the Israeli military actions in Gaza right now. Thank you, Mark. And first, can I just say how sorry I'm, I am to hear about Yusuf. Um, I'm sure that's a great loss to everyone who, who knew him. Uh, my condolences for that. And, you know, you talk about not hearing from Ibrahim. And I have to say that uh for me myself it's a constant worry of uh, you know getting those text messages but worse not getting those text messages which read i'm still alive and that's you know what aid agencies have, have got with staff as they go in every single day to check you know who's alive in gaza and who who is not and it's increasingly difficult to, to get those messages so you're absolutely spot on that there is this huge contradiction between what a lot of leaders have said, British, American and others, between eventually coming out with this line that Israel must adhere to international law, but yes, it can actually conduct a, a, a siege. Um, even in the beginning, um, you know, if we go right back to the start, we had the British Prime Minister expressing unequivocal support for Israel. I'm always allergic to the idea in a conflict you should ever uh, give unequivocal support to one party to a conflict because that is essentially a huge bright green light to do whatever they wish. In the House of Commons this week, many senior MPs were saying, whatever happens, everything is to be blamed on Hamas. But yet again, that totally removes any accountability 
for what Israeli leaders, what their forces are doing. It is Israel's responsibility, what it bombs, where it bombs, what it decides to let into to Gaza and so forth. It has to be responsible for its own actions. And Hamas, of course, has to be responsible for it. But sure, look, we are looking at a situation. Gaza is occupied territory. The laws of war stand. Hamas committed war crimes, let us be clear. Uh, and also including taking those hostages inside Gaza's trip. We all want to see them released. But also under the laws of war, you cannot, as you just said, commit collective punishment. Now, that's gone on without any criticism whatsoever. And I completely agree with Raz. Some of the statements of Israeli leaders are really chilling. Often when we, you know, believe that we are seeing war crimes being committed or crimes against humanity, you don't necessarily get the, those who are actually committing it telling you that they're going to do it beforehand. You have actually statements of intent. And that goes from, you know, well, the president, quite frankly, because the president of Israel said that there are basically no innocent people in, in Gaza. They're all guilty. And he's saying that. And the defense minister is saying similar things. As Israeli forces are gathered on the borders with Gaza, as the air force is bombing. So imagine being a young Israeli soldier and you're hearing your leadership saying the whole time, there's nobody innocent in there. We're going to, we're not going to do precision. We're going to do destruction. So it is incumbent upon Israel to adhere to uh, international law. It has to be clear distinction between civilian and combatant issues of proportionality. And that means in this case, ensuring that if you are carrying out a military action, that you have made a proper judgment as to uh, what impact that would have on the civilian population. It, you know, uh, there are so many other issues. We've seen credible reports, I think, of the use of white phosphorus in urban areas. And they have targeted, targeted civilian infrastructure, which actually exacerbates the effects of the siege. So we have seen uh, wells being bombed, water pumping stations, desalination plant, Obviously, that uh, impacts the ability to get water out. The absence of fuel has meant that that water can no longer be pumped. Um, you know, you have surgeons who can no longer sterilize because there's no water pressure. their instruments. So all of this, uh, the bombardment is exacerbating the impact of the siege. And of course, which hardly any politicians refer to, but Raz did, is that we're not talking about the Gaza Strip being some wonderful place prior to the 7th of October, as humanitarian agencies, we were talking about a humanitarian crisis in Gaza. We've now moved to a situation we're talking about a humanitarian catastrophe and atrocity prevention. I mean, so already the population of the Gaza Strip were malnourished, drinking water that was not even fit for animals to drink. One can carry on. I'm sure most of your your viewers and listeners know that, but it seems the politicians make no reference to that. It was as if it's illegitimate to refer to the situation before. Referring to the situation before doesn't mean justification of what Hamas did. It is explaining and giving vital context as to why the siege and bombardment is even more deadly, more disastrous, than it might otherwise have been. 
there's also massive hypocrisy. I'll finish on this point, if I may, because, you know, a year ago, European leaders, British leaders and others were condemning Russia, quite rightly, for use of siege and starvation as a weapon of war. We had that also in Syria, uh, where the Syrian regime did exactly that, and there was widespread condemnation, quite rightly. So why do Palestinians not receive that same level of uh, at least rhetorical protection of international leaders saying siege is not permissible? I mean, siege is medieval. I mean, denying water to a captive population under occupation, it, it's, you know, I've gathered some politicians weren't sure what the lines were to say on siege when asked. You need to be instructed what the line is about a siege on a civilian population and denying water to them. I mean, that's like saying, what's your line on mass rape? And you have to go and ask somebody what it is. It should be very clear. There shouldn't be hesitation. Fortunately, it would appear that the um, the British public are, are, are much clearer than their politicians because uh, YouGov have published a poll today, and you may be aware of this, 76% of those polled in Britain uh, want a ceasefire and an end to the conflict, with only 8% opposing. Uh, it, it does it does really it does really beg a belief, especially when the United Nations is talking about system uh, systems being on the verge of collapse. And I suppose coming to you, Raz, if I may, you know when when there are conflicts, when there are terrible things happen happening, um, people sometimes rush to conclusions and they bandy accusations around, um, but. We are, we are hearing, uh, we are hearing in the case of Gaza, the word genocide. This is your speciality. Can you tell us, in your um, opinion, as a result of all of, the, of your academic knowledge and research, is is this is the, are there are there acts of genocide now taking place in Gaza? Without a doubt, in my view, um, I, I, I think that when it comes to international legal processes, they're long and they're enmeshed, of course, with international politics, right? Uh, but if we, if, we, uh, uh, if we understand that uh, genocide requires the special intent to destroy, right? And we're seeing it now across the board in Israeli politics and society and culture, anyone who follows Hebrew language sources see it everywhere, annihilatory, explicit, unashamed language. We see it at the very top, as, as you said, Chris, the Israeli president, army officers, everything will be eliminated. Uh, you have Gallant, uh, Daniel Agari, Israeli army spokesperson, the uh, focuses on destruction and not accuracy. And of course it is. Thousands of thousands and thousands of bombs, right? Within a few days, uh, the use of white phosphorus, and you know, there's no time. But I invite readers to check what that means. It's a kind of weapon that burns, right, uh, in air, and nothing uh, uh, can can you know stop it. Uh, um, uh, once we have the special intent. That is just on display here, and I explained why. Because of the use of the Holocaust in this way, because of the portrayal of a world turned upside down, which I want to remind everyone, Putin did just that when he invaded Ukraine. Uh, 
he talked about, quote-unquote, denazification. And this was after, by the way, two years earlier, he was at Yad Vashem, celebrated, right, as an icon of the West, invited to, uh, um, uh, to a big international conference at Yad Vashem, where he distorted the history of the Holocaust, right, presented a distorted picture that elides the German-Soviet uh, uh, pact in 1939 that allowed the destruction of Poland, presented Ukrainians at Yad Vashem as primarily Nazi collaborators, and then used this portrayal and this language when he invaded uh, um, uh, Ukraine in February 2022, uh, and we're seeing it uh, right now as well. And that explains also the annihilatory explicit language mm -hmm. on, for example, Russian media that we've seen, and also the unashamed and explicit, because if we're talking about Nazis, then there is no law. Everything is permissible, right? Now, when you take the special intent together with the kinds of violence that we're seeing, because of course, not every time that, that uh, we see bombings of civilian populations, uh, uh, we can talk about genocide. It doesn't really matter for the people under attack, of course, right? Uh, um, but uh, uh, but for the purpose here, once we can we see it with the special intent. So these bombings are genocidal killings, and once we see an explicit now think about it. Yoav Gallant took the 17-year-old illegal siege. Think about the levels of Israeli impunity, right? The mm -hmm. longest siege in modern history. Right? and upgraded it to a complete siege, which is a new term, by the way. As far as I can see, as far as I've checked, this is a new term, complete siege. It tells us everything we need to know about the, the, the direction of genocidal travel. right? And he said, no food, no water, no fuel, no nothing. Everything will be closed. Everything will be eliminated. Right? This is creating conditions designed to bring about the destruction of the group. So, so Raz, can I can I take that on then? So, do you do you think when Netanyahu also talked about recasting the Middle East, this would be this would change it forever? I mean, is is this really about driving the Palestinians out of Gaza and also out of the West Bank? It's not. It's also ethnic cleansing. Is is this is this part of the plan that? Really has been kind of fast forwarded by the Hamas attacks. It's it's given a great, obviously given Netanyahu this fantastic opportunity to unify the nation that he hopes. I mean, he's obviously getting a lot of blame from a lot of Israelis. But is this the opportunity for him and some of the extremists in his cabinet to push for this agenda of finally clearing out Palestinians from those areas that uh, that Israel would like to include in the Greater Israel? Look, there, there's you know. The, the, there's a question of genocide now on Gaza, and I think, and I think, as I said in my view, it's very clear it is indeed a textbook because of the explicit special intent that we see on display. But we have to be clear: the Israeli violence against Palestinians is a structural, systemic issue since the creation of the Israeli state, since the Nakba, uh, uh, um, through military occupation, through siege, through apartheid policies. It's all well, well, well documented. There is no Hamas in the West Bank. Hamas does not control the West Bank. And yet we see an unbelievably process of ethnic cleansing taking place in the West Bank, uh, which has intensified uh, 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 in the past year. Um, now also, by the way, right, there is no Hamas in the West Bank. Israel has killed dozens of Palestinians since the 7th of October in the West Bank, has accelerated and intensified this ethnic cleansing with the destruction of whole communities of Palestinians now under Israeli military occupation, right? There is no Hamas, right? 
um, so yes, absolutely. This is not. This does not. This Hamas attack was an absolute war crime, without a doubt, right? But we we have to see this in a larger context. This does not in any way justify this horrendous crime, this mass murder of more than a thousand Israelis, and probably more now with the, with the new numbers coming out, right? But we have to see this in this broader context of basically creating the idea, the imagination, the fantasy of creating a Jewish state without Palestinians. And I have to say one last thing, which is very important on my end. There is no military solution for this, right? No proportional or disproportional response. There is no military solution for this. There are 7 million Jews and 7 million pa Palestinians on that land, and the future belongs to both of them, right? So we, we need to, if we, what is the solution? Well, if we really take seriously the lessons of the Holocaust, if we want to use that phrase, right, the solution is to forefront victims and survivors of state violence and genocide, not portray them as, as evil and Nazis. The solution is accountability. We have clear incitement for genocide. That's punishable under Article 3 of the Convention, even if genocide does not follow, right? And we need to talk about truth and justice. We need to dismantle a settler colonial state, and we need to create a state that's based on equality, on freedom and dignity for everyone who lives there. Thank you very much, Rez. And I know that you have to leave us shortly. Um, but, but before you do, I just quickly come to Chris because uh, there was also, uh, Rez was mentioning Ukraine and the clear double standards that we've seen um, and the culture of impunity. Um, we, we know that, for instance, with the uh, the, the, the claims and the counterclaims about the uh, terrible killing uh, through uh, through the explosions at the uh, Christian hospital in Gaza, uh, that uh, had this been in Ukraine, the ICC investigators would probably have been in within a matter of days. But we know that um, uh, Israel is is not party to the International Criminal Court, neither is the United States. Of course, Russia is no longer either. That's walked out too. So, how on earth can these how can how on earth can these military and political leaders who have been, as, as you've both been reminding us, have been quite blatant in, in, in their intent to commit war crimes. How can they be held to account when uh, there is, it's not it's not even the culture of impunity, it's that they have a total impunity because Israel won't, won't sign up to the International Criminal Court. Well, this is a huge concern. The issue of accountability has been something that's, terrified us all for so long. I remember this is Israel's sixth major military operation on Gaza. That's putting aside the, the other less significant ones since 2005. And we haven't seen any accountability whatsoever after each and every single one. And that makes actually the failure to call for adherence to international law on behalf of Israel even worse, because we have the evidence that they were doing it before and prime ministers and presidents aren't saying anything. So we have the statements of intent and we have the past record here as well. So yes, I think that one thing I think is really noticeable and rarely commented upon is the increasing gulf between Europe and the North America on the one hand and particularly the global South. Yes. And they see this huge double standards that Ukraine-Russia was a European war fought according to uh, our standards that because they were blonde, blue-eyed refugees, we'll take them in. 
when it comes to places like Afghanistan, etc., we wouldn't. And now we are seeing a situation in which Israel is perpetrating many of the things that uh, Vladimir Putin was uh, was doing, and we say nothing. Now, Putin's going to be quite happy about that because he's going to be able to use this for his own agenda to be able to say, mm. how can you condemn me when your ally, your very close ally who you stand with, has been doing these things? China will probably be looking at this and going, well, that's good news. Um, but actually, we need to realize this is very dangerous for us all. If international law is ripped up, dispatched, obliterated like this, then all those protections in the time of war will be going. Yes. Protections yes. are well, you know, really Chris, important. It, they don't, didn't come about for no reason. They yeah. matter. It, 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 it just occurred to me uh, today when I was watching uh, Prime Minister Sunak that essentially this is almost another Suez moment for uh, the United States, less so for Britain, because Britain doesn't count as much. But you would have hoped that Britain would have some kind of moral authority. But the fact that this isolation, as you, as you mentioned, is quite palpable. Um, we have heard the calls from um, the Foreign Minister of Colombia the other day. Thank you, Raz. I know you've had to go, but thank you very much. Thank you very much for, for sharing uh, your thoughts uh, with us, uh, but uh, so Chris, um, yeah, I mean the, the, this this dissonance between the w the West likes to talk about the international community, but it now looks increasingly that the international community is somewhere else. Um, uh, but I mean, what, how does this how does this how is this is playing out in the Arab capitals though? Because we saw, as you say, you know, Egypt and President Abbas mm -hmm. and. Jordan saying no to meeting Biden because clearly Biden was in the United States were about to veto that resolution at the Security Council. And they thought, well, what's the point? But where, where does this leave the United States elsewhere in the region? Well, the United States is still a, a, a major power. I think it will probably muddy through. But actually, what is also remarkable, and I really have not said this very often, that actually Arab diplomacy has looked far more responsible and statesmanlike in the last 11 days than a lot of the European and American diplomacy. They've called for all the right things, a ceasefire, uh, you know, a resolution to get aid in. Uh, most of them have acknowledged uh, the crimes that were you know, committed by Hamas against Israel. I mean, they are showing a much greater sense of urgency and the risks involved then we are seeing in Europe this complacency. We are so much in an era of navel-gazing uh, that mm. we are no longer able to realise the dangers of these conflicts that in ter terms of the European Union is pretty much on its borders. Yes. And in fact, I was asked today, you know, why should it, you know, why, why shouldn't Europe mm. just be a distributor of humanitarian aid? It has no power. Well, simply that actually this will impact Europe probably more than the United States because, I mean, imagine if we do get a Palestinian refugee exodus, if there is a conflagration that spreads to Israel, Lebanon with Hezbollah, where the refugees going to go? Well, you can be sure that a lot of them will want to go to Europe. We can also be fairly confident, sadly, that a lot of extremists will seek to profit from this and there may well be targeting of what are deemed Western uh, targets. We could get to a situation where all the diplomacy in the world won't be able to contain all of this. 
unless mm. we move the suitable urgency in this, reminding, as we've said throughout uh, tonight, uh, of the absolute importance of adhering to international law, but specifying the specific crimes that have got to stop. It's no good say adhere to international law. It should come with, and that includes stopping the siege, stopping bombing civilian targets, allowing full humanitarian access. And of course, uh, in terms of, of Hamas, release the hostages. Now, it shouldn't be that difficult. This, this was bread and butter politics and diplomacy 20, 30 years ago. There would have been almost an automaticity to that sort of response in a situation like this. But yes. no more today. We have politicians more worried about the headlines tomorrow. Uh, in Britain's case, they're more uh, thinking, I think, about how to get the Labour Party or the opposition into a tight fix than actually how to deal with the actual serious risks in front of them. There's, there's, there's another thing, Chris, which is um, it's not just the political response that's changed, but it's the military one. I mean, I'm, I'm not, a, I, for what it's worth, I'm not, I've got nothing, I've no knowledge of the military at all. I might, might come from an army family and, and my father ended up being posted to various places as, the, as Britain was pulling out. And this is the interesting thing to, to many people, not really discussed, but if the Israelis, uh, through their right for self-defense, would amount a counterinsurgency program. It would normally, um, if you certainly looked at the Malayan emergency or what happened in Kenya uh, or Cyprus, uh, involve some hearts and minds. Um, it would. Uh, I'm not getting too carried away about all of this because these were these were grubby uh, little uh, retreats from empire for the most part, where a lot mm. of people lost their lives. But there would the the the, the comparison would be. In Malaya right now would be General Walter Walker levelling Kuala Lumpur. Uh, well, to, to the, this is the most extraordinary thing that's happened. But also consider this. I mean, Israel has uh, at least a fifth of its population are Palestinian citizens of Israel. You have also Israel is, you know, in occupation of the West Bank. So it controls, you know, two and a half million Palestinians there. So you would think if there was a rational leadership, and to be fair, I suppose after the trauma of those atrocities, rational leadership is going to be in short supply. But a rational leadership would actually really be looking at the hearts and minds, not just as they're trying to do to win an information war largely in the West, in the English-speaking world, but also with, you know, the people who they are occupying, etc., to actually reach out to civilians in Gaza and say, look, really, we don't want to be your enemies here. We understand Hamas is the issue. I hope you understand why we, you know, and to try to limit the uh, impact on civilians. But there's none of that at all. And that when you consider with the genocidal uh, the very genocidal statements of the Israeli leadership that Raz outlined, um, I think is deeply troubling. Uh, he said there was no military solution. Well, he also talked about, you know, a crime of genocide being committed. I think what's really disturbing is that there are some people, perhaps within Israel, who do see that as a military solution, that actually committing that crime of genocide combined with ethnic cleansing, you force the population out of out of uh, out of the Gaza Strip, that that is a military solution. 
that they will, will do that. It's very short-sighted. It's obviously wrong and immoral. It's illegal. Um, but what do they think down the line is going to happen, that they're going to get peace and security from doing this? It's very naive. It shows that they don't understand history either. Mm. Um I'm not sure if Karim is uh, able to join us shortly, but I mean, but continuing, uh, just one. Oh, here is Karim. I think he's going to come back. But Chris, perhaps finally, before I go to uh, Karim, it's it's a difficult question to ask, I suppose, because who who can really know? But um, we're looking at a, 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 obviously a very tense situation on the border with uh, Lebanon, with Hezbollah and Israelis. Uh, exchanging fire. We're looking at a, a very, very volatile situation in the West Bank. Um, a huge number of arrests, uh, a number of people killed today, Palestinians, of course, again. Uh, and we're looking at a, a, a really, really very, very angry Arab world on the Arab street. So there are, there are political leaders in the Arab world getting really rather nervous, I would have thought. But if this ground offensive does take place, uh, if the humanitarian interlude is just that, there's no ceasefire and, and 20 trucks go in and it's back to the horrors within a very short period of time, how, how do you think this could play out over the next week? Really, or so? you could write a horror script from that because the, the possible scenarios are almost endless. Once you've got... Uh, a conflict between Hezbollah and Israel, you know, is, is Iran going to be out of the picture? To what extent does Syria then get sucked in? Because, you know, Israel, of course, has already struck targets within Syria, in, in, you know, since the 7th of October. It, it, it's, it becomes a situation where it's really, really hard to contain, uh, and including in the West Bank and, uh, you, know, um, you know, over 500, you know, Palestinians have been forcibly you know, transferred out of their communities since the 7th of October. This is part of a process that's been going on and it now, in all likelihood, will be exacerbated as everyone is paying attention to the situation in uh, Gaza and southern Israel. So it is extremely worrying. And, you know, if I thought that there were international leaders with real gravitas and statesmanship mm. who were prepared, particularly the President of the United States, to do something about it and step in and read the riot act to the parties involved, I'd feel a little bit more confident that we could prevent those worst case scenarios. But we don't. We have a weak American leadership. We have a divided European Union. And there doesn't seem to be key international actors who are going to exercise the sort of really uh, dedicated diplomacy and tough language that is necessary right now to prevent things getting a hundred times worse. And that is so alarming. But thank you for having me. Thank you very much indeed, Chris. And I know you, you're very busy and, and we appreciate all that you're doing and, and um, all good luck to you over the next uh, the next period. Please keep in touch. We'd like to have you back on again if you can spare us time. So thank you, Chris. Thank you. Um, and, and welcome, Kareem. Thank you so much for being so patient um, and for bearing with us. Uh, I wonder if we could just begin, if you could just tell us something about Gaza Sunbirds, uh, about what you're doing, and of course, you know, what the situation is for some of your colleagues who are actually in Gaza now. What, what are you hearing? What is the situation for them individually? 
Sure, Mark. Uh, first of all, thank you for having me on the show. Uh, thank you for the other two speakers who joined us. It's uh, an honor to be here with everyone. Um, yeah, so my name is Kareem Ali. I'm the co-founder of the Gaza Sunbirds. Uh, the Gaza Sunbirds is a paracycling team founded in the Gaza Strip. Um, and it's run in the Gaza Strip, and all our staff are in the Gaza Strip, and our athletes are in the Gaza Strip. And um, it was founded in 2020 uh, on the push of an athlete there who was the Palestinian cycling champion called Ala Iddali. Uh, Ala was the cycling champion for Palestine uh, in 2018, and he'd been rejected for many opportunities to actually travel and compete internationally. In 2018, as we know, the Great March of Free Turn happened, and it happened four months before the Asian Games in Jakarta. It was going to be Ala's first opportunity uh, to leave Gaza in his life. He decided to go to the Great March of Free Turn as an athlete. He wore his cycling clothes and he took his bike with him. And the idea was just to show people that we are human beings and we're athletes and we have to have the right to leave the siege and to, to travel, to see the world, to communicate with the world, to live, you know? Unfortunately, on that day, more than 6,000 Palestinians were shot. More than 3,000 were ended up amputated or had severe injuries. And unfortunately, Ala was one of those 3,000. Uh, Ala was rejected medical leave from Gaza and within days of his injury it was forced to amputate his leg and um, actually I, he sometimes referred to it it was almost like the amputation of his dream and I, I often say this when I speak is yes it's so easy to get caught up in the number of casualties and the number of buildings that have been bombed but you know, the real depressing thing is like where, where you see rubble, we see dreams, we see our future, where we, you see dead children, you know. Every single death is an opportunity for an entire life that could have been lived, that could have found love, that could have produced love in this world, you know, that could have bettered humanity. And, you know, we've just murdered more than 3,000 of them in the span of eight or nine days. You know, it's been 12 days now, sorry. I've lost all concept of time at this point. So Ala and these other amputees and people with disabilities in Gaza, you know, they have more than a right than anyone to be pissed off, to hate Israel for what it's done, and to hate the occupation, and you know. But with that, Ala decided that he wants to get back on his bike. He then became the first paracyclist in Palestine. Not only that, he decided he wants to start a paracycling team to help his other brothers who have gone through similar experiences not be victims anymore, retake control of their life, get back on a bike, strive for international competition, strive to represent Palestine on the world stage, strive to share their stories, to change the narrative. And if these people, these people, Israel is saying that we are animals, Israel is saying that we're not human beings. If these people have lost everything at your hands, everything, 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 they can still love and they can still dream, and they can still build, and organize, and create a community and a society for themselves. And every single thing that is being said to dehumanize us is absolutely false. How can we all be animals when people, like in the most vulnerable of us, are not willing to victimize themselves, and are willing to get back together, and are willing to build, and, and to have hope and faith in a future? 
Karim, this is where I think the essential humanity of most people uh, comes in. I mean, we've just heard today of this poll of the British public that 76% want a ceasefire and end to, to what they're seeing. Um, people are people all over the world. And I, I, I wonder, you know, is it because, you know, we are able to talk to you now and, and hear your story and hear Alice's story and, and learn more that actually through, especially through social media, I'm thinking, you know, particularly through Instagram and what have you, which has been an immensely powerful tool for people to get their actual real stories out there. People are by and large much better informed. And that is why perhaps so many people are saying, no, this has got to stop. Do you think, is, is social media a, a help to you, do you think, in some respects? I mean, just to be clear, Mark, I think this should have stopped 75 years ago. Mm. I, I, I think that the world has always known what is happening. Us Palestinians, we have tried, you know, many have come before us and have died before us, you know, to share our message. We have so many martyrs and, and so many great, the great academics and, and great politicians that have come and gone. And are all saying the same message. We're an intrinsic part of the revolutionary identity of most societies out there. We have the privilege to be because we've fought side by side with everybody, you know? It's, it, the reality is the world knows, most good people know. It is consistently politicians that are, that are you know, twisting these stories so that they can benefit and they can save themselves and they can save face, you know, instead of making, realizing the truth. Like, I, I, I feel like, uh, what are we doing on Instagram? We're fighting for the truth. We're fighting not to accept the lies that are being said. And, I, and Instagram shadow bans us. And Instagram blocks our accounts and removes our posts. You know, that Instagram is no saint. It doesn't, I, mm. I, but definitely we're, we're very, uh, very lucky generation to have this reach, to have this access to the world, you know. But also, is part of the Israeli attack on Gaza right now um, depriving uh, Palestinians of electricity, the basic necessities of life, also partly to try and shut down people from seeing what's happening? Because if there's no power, eventually the phones run out. Eventually, the few journalists that are able, they're either killed or can no longer operate. So do you think this is also part and parcel of their of their genocide, really, in Gaza now? Of course. I mean, we saw this just yesterday with the Al-Shifa hospital bombing, right? Uh, the Al-Ahli hospital. You know, it, it, was, it was bombed. They took claim for it and said that they killed a bunch of terrorists. In the next, within hours, we released photographs of the massacres that happened, of more than 600, 700 Palestinian children and women who died, right? And men, they're innocent too, right? And, and, and they, they, then they came and tried to blame it on Hamas. And they don't want the truth to come out. They don't want the world to see the death. Let me tell you a little bit about my team and, and how they're doing at the moment. I, I try to speak to my team members every single day. Our team is a family. We are one unit. I love every single one of them with all my life. And I'm, I'm trying my hardest right now to be there for them. But it's not about me. It's about them. They are in a very tough position right now. They're in a very tough position. I speak to them every day. The situation is getting more and more desperate. I, I, I have been on the phone line with them multiple times when I have heard bombs dropping on their house and the signal cut. And thankfully, thankfully, they survived. 
you know it's every time every time you know i've even started to through the through the phone i've even started to jump from the sound of the bombs you hear the bombs dropping on the phone it's not imaginary it's not happening to imagine you know you're on the phone and you hear them dropping you know everyone is in fear everyone just wants their family to live a good life and the funny thing is that every single person you talk to they're like i do not care about myself i only want my family to live i i don't want to put my family through the loss of, of losing me there's been no water no electricity from three days in to this genocide i was receiving voice notes from my athletes telling me uh please we don't have food we don't have water we don't know what to do we need help and thankfully, Ala, our team captain, has been there for his entire team throughout this entire thing. It's incredible to see the resilience. To the, yesterday, Ala went on one leg and distributed bread for 1,800 people in a refugee camp in the south of Gaza. He did it on one leg you know, with the message that you're not going to destroy our desire to live. You're not going to destroy our ability to, to help each other. We are determined to, to, to live a life that is, is, that is worth living, you know? And this is just the reality. It's, it's, water is pretty much not found. Every day, signal and electricity gets worse. I mean, I've noticed this because I'm in consistent communication with my team. We, in the last four days, we've dropped to the average phone call lasting six minutes. Today, the average phone call lasted one minute and 30 seconds before it was disconnected. it's 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 terrible it's horrible have you you got family uh, in gaza at the moment kareem yourself no i don't have family in gaza no um fortunately actually i feel very privileged not to but i consider this team my family you know and their their weight their their lives really weigh on me right now i really hope that they're going to survive i really hope that their dreams are going to survive i hope that their vision to build something is going to survive i hope that i hope that no more amputees have to join our team i, I pray for a future way that this isn't the case you know it's it's heartbreaking seeing this we have an athlete actually just to, to tell you um his name is abu asfur and he put his family in one of the schools he's staying in one of the hospitals uh, my project manager told me the story today he, he's an amputee and he, he, he goes up to people who have just been injured and he tells them, don't worry, you're going to be fine. You're going to regain control one day. You're going to be able to walk. When this war is over, when this genocide is over, we're going to let you join our team. You're going to join our team. You know, this is in the midst of this desperation. They can still give hope to themselves and give hope to each other. And they take it as their duty to give hope to each other as well. What is more human than this? How can you... How I, I'm not that human. I wish, I wish, I don't know what I would do in their position. It is, it is unimaginable for us sitting here to, to, to think of people huddling together with their families as people are. They're actually saying, well, if we're going to be killed, we want to all die together. It's unimaginable. I mean, the in this country, in Britain, where we're sitting here, you know, in the Second World War and the big cities, the bombing raids, uh, civilians were suffering. And at the end of that war, they said never again. And we had the United Nations. You'd never allow this situation where civilians would be um, would be abused and killed in, in such ferocious, ferocious and horrific ways as, as is happening right now in Gaza. And I suppose there's, a, there's another, I suppose, a slightly more practical question. It's a very difficult Thing, especially when you're struggling just even to 
to survive and keep your fellow team members um, surviving. But are, are the international sporting bodies, are they, are they, you know, celebrity sports people who have some influence out there? Are you in contact with any of these organizations and people? And how can they help if there's any way they can of well, doing what can they well, do? I mean, we would love if anyone in the international sports community would reach forward and talk to us. Um, we have some communication with athletes. There's definitely a lot of solidarity with our team. We've had a lot of attempts to leave Gaza. You know, the story of Gaza is decades old at this point. You know, the situation was is not like ridiculously better before this uh, this genocidal campaign started on the Strip. They still had limited access to water. They still had limited access to food. They still had limited access to electricity. Every day was still a struggle. Every day was still hell. They described it as hell. And you would hear people say, I'm choking, I'm suffocating, I'm suffocating, I need to leave. How, how are they going to feel now? Imagine if the situation became worse than hell. Imagine you reached hell, and now the situation is worse than hell. So then what is it? Kareem, how, what, what, what a lot of people don't understand, I suspect, is that you know Israel has closed Gaza off and turned it into this open-air prison. This is one war of a number. And I was a reporter for Al Jazeera, and I remember previous wars. This is this is absolutely the worst that there has been in, in recent years. But at the same time, you know, Egypt controls the crossing at, at Rafah, as well as the Israelis. But people wonder why, why across the Arab world aren't the leaders? being more supportive and doing more. The people in the street are, but what, what is it with the leadership in Egypt and Jordan and Saudi Arabia? To boycott a meeting is one thing, but why are they not saying to the Americans, stop your ally from doing this? You know, Mark, I'm not a political analyst or a politician by any means. I, I don't know if I'm best placed to give you an accurate analysis of the situation. Um, yeah. From from my perspective, this is just like a standard uh, change in the status quo over the years. You know, I think uh, financial interests, uh, unfortunately, outweigh human interests for a lot of governments. Uh, we see this whether you're talking about climate change. We see this whether you're talking about indigenous rights. You see this whether you're talking about disability rights around the world. You see this when you're talking about how medication is allocated. It's, it's consistently the same thing. It's it's, mm. it's someone is going to profit off of it someone is profiting off of it now someone is lining their their pockets real estate developers are already planning what they're going to build in Gaza. Hmm. karim karim as we uh, we'd have to bring things to a to close shortly but i just wonder you know we, we're obviously going to and my colleagues omar and alex are going to get this interview out in lots of different ways and lots of different media so if you have a message to people out there, uh, what is it? What can they do to help? I would tell everybody that we are fighting for the truth. We are fighting for the future of decency and of everything we hold dear in this world. We've slept through so many genocides as humanity. In this day and age, there are no excuses. There is nothing that we will do that's going to excuse your silence now. This is the time to speak. This is the time to stand up. This is the time to start changing the narrative. This is the time to hold politicians accountable for what they're doing. 
if if the British government wants to help kill thousands and thousands of Gazans, then they're committing war crimes just the same as the Israelis. And as people living in the United Kingdom, we are going to be as complicit if 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 we're already as complicit. If we really want to do something to make a difference, to make a change, it's it's time go and support the marches that are happening. Speak to your local politicians. Educate your friends and family about Palestine. Post. If all you can do is post, post. Donate money. Support activists and Palestinian activists that have been doing this for years. Strike. Thank if you, you want to strike, yeah. do what you need. But the point is that we all need to act, and the time to act is now. There's, there's no tomorrow. It's already too late. It's already too late. This should have happened 75 years ago. And now we're on the last breath. Well, thank you, Kareem. At the end of the day, as uh, both Raz and Chris and you are saying, I mean, the, the reality is there are 7 million Palestinians and nothing is going to be achieved by violence and by killing people or by genocide. Uh, it will just... It will just redouble people's efforts to receive to, to, to demand justice and to demand um, equal rights. That is all it seems to many of us that the Palestinians are demanding. And why, if we can't have equal rights in this country, can't Palestinians have equal rights where they live? Karim, thank you so much for joining us tonight. We're very grateful for your time. We wish you all the very best. And, and also our thoughts are with your team in Gaza. And uh, we hope that you join us again in, in happier times. So thank you very much, Karim. Thank you.